You know, as we were singing that song, uh, uh, Power of the Cross, I just realized that uh, I was in Northern Ireland back in 05 at a conference where that song was first sung. Uh, the Gettys had just written that song, and uh, wow, I feel like I'm a part of history here. And uh, that, that every time I sing that song and the other one, In Christ Alone, that they, they wrote, I, 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 get, I get tears in my eyes, you know. I just think about just the idea of God, the creator of this whole universe that we don't even know the end of it yet. Uh, just, it would be mind-boggling if he just paid attention to me, just or paid attention to our whole world, as, as, as insignificant as it is in comparison to the size of the universe. And then he pays attention to each one of us and hears us pray and answers us. That's just amazing, you know. So, And then not only that, but he, when we rebelled against him, he came, he sent his only son to save us. I mean, that's just incredible. That's incredible. All right, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. By the way, it's it's great to be back at Faith. You know, I I, I miss uh, I miss living in Baltimore and a lot a lot. I, I don't miss the the cold. I mean, Chattanooga, Tennessee, it was 80 yesterday. <laughs> 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 but uh, I do miss uh, Baltimore. Um, all right, here we go. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. At the, ti the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell... Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Remember, my son, that, that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anger, agony. And besides all of this, between us, there's a great chasm that has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone was to come from the dead and goes back to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of a scripture. A case of grace abuse. A case of grace 
abuse. Now, we're all familiar with the prodigal son. And in that parable, Jesus reminds us that God is a God of grace. He reveals the grace of the gospel. But in this par parable, Jesus shows us the wrath of God when grace is neglected. And now let me get you to understand something. Grace neglect is equal to grace abuse. Got it? Let's say that together. Grace neglect equals grace abuse. All right. We need to be reminded of the serious implications of the gospel every now and then. We, need, we, we, we tend to be lulled to sleep by a false sense of security in sameness. We heard that passage from uh, 2 Peter 3 about, they said, uh, when the fathers fell asleep, everything continues as it was, and we don't have to worry about them. Besides, where is this promise coming, and blah, 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 right? So it's been going like that for years, and nothing's going to change. But with this parable, Jesus intends to wake us up by reminding us that we are to live with a consciousness of eternity. Now, I'm not saying that we should be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. I'm not saying that. But as we live in this life, we've got to think also in terms of eternity. Now, that helps you out a little bit. <clears throat> Sometimes things get kind of rough in history. Uh, sometimes things look kind of grim. Sometimes you might wonder, well, what's going on? The problem is when we see things from the perspective of history, it's like looking at a ledger sheet. And, and you know, a ledger sheet has a, a, a debit side and a credit side, right? All we see is the debit side. And it looks like we're $10 million in the red. But if you see the credit side, you see that there's been a $100 million gift. You got that? Now, we, but we only see the debit side. And God assures us, don't worry. I know the credit side. Every now and then, God gives us a glimpse of the credit side. Every now and then. Case of Job. Job lost everything he had and went through agony. But in the end, he gained everything double. But that wasn't really the thing that satisfies him. The thing that satisfies Job the most are the millions of people of God who have been encouraged by his story. That's where the real reward is. That's the ledger sheet. So just remember, you only see the, the debit side. And history has a way of doing that. But when you think in terms of eternity, you know that there is a credit side. So the other thing, too, is that Jesus reminds us that what we do in history has a direct bearing on how we will spend eternity. And by this parable, Jesus is, is, is equipping us to deal with the poverty and adversity we often face in this life. And he's equipping us to resist the temptation of being dazzled by worldly prosperity. By this parable, Jesus is reminding us that grace neglect equals what? Grace abuse. Now let's look at these two men in history. We're going to look at these two men in history. The rich man was honored by society. The poor man was disregarded by society. According to today's prosperity gospel, though, the rich man is being rewarded for his faithfulness, and the poor man 
Must have had some sin in his life. Have you ever heard that one? I get so sick and tired. Next time somebody tells me that, when I'm going through trouble, and they tell me it must be some sin in your life, I'm going to knock them out. I'm just going to punch them hard. <laughs> and so, you know, and we know that's not true. Because why is that not true? Because everybody has sin in their lives. <laughs> and sometimes we let this stinking thinking creep into our minds. We lose sight of God's abundant grace when we are going through bad times. And we start patting ourselves on the back when we are going through good times. Have you ever thought that when things are really going well that you finally got the formula right? And all you got to do is turn the crank. Uh-huh. And what does God do when that happens? He knocks that thing right out. Check with David in Psalm chapter 30. He thought he had it figured out. And God said, oh, no, you don't. You know, he pulled the, pulled the rug out from under him. And he said, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. You know. And then at the end, he, he comes around to seeing that his faith is in God and not in the circumstances. That's the thing. Circum, good circumstances are intoxicating. They want to make you believe in them. But it's not just circumstances you believe in. It's God. It's God. We assume that poverty is God's judgment for sin in our lives. We assume that prosperity is God's reward for our faithfulness. But all this is what? Stinking thinking. Why? Because if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation over you. If you're in Christ then there was nothing to boast about because you have earned nothing. So all these things must be happening in a, for another reason. In other words, grace neglect equals grace abuse. Let's take a look at the rich man here. He lived in great luxury, wore the most expensive designer clothes. He, he ate the best foods, probably shopped at Whole Foods or something, something like that. <laughs> he, he furnishes home with the best furniture from uh, a touch of modern. Um, what is it, a touch of modern? You know, you ever get that online? Oh, they, they have these wonderful things, but they, you know, just, but just a little lamp here. That's like kind of fancy. Costs $2,000 or that kind of thing. All right, he, 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 was, he was just doing great. He was doing great. But Jesus, it's interesting, does not even imply here that being wealthy in and of itself is evil. He doesn't imply that. Nor does Jesus imply that this man became wealthy by criminal means or by oppressing other people, like the tax collectors did. Jesus does not uh, imply that he was particularly cor a particularly corrupt man. He was probably a synagogue-going guy, you know. All right? Jesus just tells us that he was comfortable, self-indulgent, and complacent. Now, this is interesting because, you know, all y'all know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and God nuked them, you know that, Right? But now, if I was to ask you, why did God nuke them? I think everybody think, has, has an answer to that, right? But it's not the obvious answer. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, God 
gives us specific reasons for why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said he destroyed them because they were arrogant, overfed, self-indulgent. They didn't care for the poor and needy. And God says, that's why I did away with them. All that other stuff you think about associated with Sodom and Gomorrah, those were the symptoms of the disease. God doesn't like this kind of stuff too much. This self-indulgence attitude. A person may be rich, but it does not mean that God loves him more because he has more. Or that he will love God because he has more. But the thing is, plenty and pleasure can be very dangerous if you're not careful. It can lead you to greed and apathy. It can lead to, to grace neglect. Eating food and, 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 and wearing good clothes, even eating good food, wearing good clothes, that's all right. I like to eat good food, wear good clothes. But it can, can turn into complacency if we're not careful. The same thing if we're in poverty. It has dangers too. It can become an idol to you. You can become, well, I'm poor and therefore <laughs> I'm more righteous than you. There's, there are whole theologies that are built around that. They attribute the people of God to being poor. They attribute the people of God to being oppressed. That's not right either. Indulging in the best while forgetting your, the poor man's distress will provoke God's wrath. And if God's grace does not move us to compassion, then maybe we neglect the grace that we claim to have. After all, grace neglect equals grace abuse. Now let's look at this poor man, Lazarus. He was on his last leg, and yet he was a godly man. And he was content with his relationship with God, it seems. He was not only poor, though, he was weak. He was not only weak, but he was sick. He had sores. He was not only full of sores, but he was forced to beg. And yet, it doesn't appear that he had a bitter attitude towards this rich man. It doesn't look like he caused a disturbance at the gate. He did not ask for a full meal or anything else of value. All he desired were the leftover scraps of food left by the dogs. Lazarus would have been very thankful for garbage thrown his way. And it was obvious that he was an ideal ministry opportunity for this rich man. But grace neglect equals grace abuse. How did the rich man relate to Lazarus? Well, he didn't try to be cruel to Lazarus. After all, some of his best friends were poor, right? He didn't try to keep Lazarus from lying at his gate. He just never got around to giving Lazarus even the leftovers he was begging for. He just ignored Lazarus and let him just lie there. In other words, he marginalized Lazarus. He took better care of his dogs. 
They were well fed, yet Lazarus was here starving to death. We abuse God's grace if we are unconcerned about the poor and the afflicted and do nothing to help the poor and the afflicted. Now, this can be in, in various ways. We talked yesterday at our seminar. You know, somebody could be in a really caught up in a real bad cultural situation, you know, one way of helping people. And there's other ways we can help. People can be emotionally poor and, and, and afflicted, and, afflicted and, and, and whatnot. But here's the thing. God hates our Christianity if it leads us to pamper our pets while leaving our fellow human beings in distress. In this passage, you will notice that the dogs had more compassion on Lazarus than this rich man did. At least the dogs licked his sores. Grace neglect equals grace abuse. Well, the story goes on. The rich man died and was buried, probably with great fanfare. It was probably announced on CNN and Fox. Okay, I'm trying to be inclusive here, right? <laughs> but Lazarus died and was not even buried as far as we know. So let's switch over from history to eternity. Let's look at these two men in eternity. Now the tables are turned, and it's too late to change anything. Lazarus is now rich in Abraham's presence, and the rich man is now a poor beggar in misery. To see Abraham would have, should have been a pleasant sight, but because Abraham was so far away for this rich man, it was a painful sight. In history, Lazarus quietly begged the rich man to the rich man, but in eternity, the rich man loudly begs to Abraham, but it was too late. In history, Lazarus was scorned and not noticed. In eternity, Lazarus was honored and envied. In history, the rich man made light of being a son of Abraham. In eternity, the rich man revered Abraham as his father, but it was no use now. In history, the rich man had no mercy for Lazarus. In eternity, the rich man expected mercy from Lazarus for old time's sake you know I've known you for years come on man help me out in history the rich man didn't give Lazarus the crumb, a crumb of food and in eternity Lazarus could not give the rich man even a drop of water he who denied a crumb was denied a drop. Grace neglect equals grace abuse. So let's look at some of the implications of this. In history, there are many who use Christ's name as a curse word. In eternity, they will be calling Christ Lord, Lord. But there will be no relief from God's curse. In history, there are many who take God's grace for granted, but in eternity, they will beg hard for it. But the day of grace will be over. 
Those who refuse God's salvation when it is available will beg for it when it is not available. Those who do not ask when it shall be given will beg for it when it's denied. Those who forget the grace and neglected in history will be forced to remember God's grace, neglect in eternity. Because grace neglect equals grace abuse. The sad thing about this passage is a phrase, remember my son, remember my son. That made the situation seem even more miserable for this rich man. Remember, my son, how you lived it up in history. Remember, my son, how ungrateful to God you were. Remember, my son, the many warnings you didn't heed. Remember, my son, how you acted as if God owed you something. Remember, my son, how you forgot that all you had was given to you by God's grace. Remember, my son, how you forgot that God did not owe you anything then, and God does not owe you anything now. Remember, my son, how you wanted the wealth, all the wealth for yourself in history. Remember, my son, how you made no provision for eternity. Remember, my son, how you abandoned Lazarus to misery and death, and now it is his turn to enjoy the good life. In other words, remember, my son, that grace neglect equals grace abuse. So the rich man, realizing that there's no hope for him, at least he had some compassion. At least he had a little bit of compassion. So what does he do? He now begs for his brothers. You know, it's funny that, you know, he's, isn't this, this is incredible. Why couldn't he do that while he was still alive? He begged for his brothers, but Abraham refused his plea for good reason. In essence, Abraham was saying, I will not send Lazarus to warn your brothers because they already have been warned by Moses and the prophets. Why should, why should God warn them again when they keep ignoring the clear warnings that he is now giving? If the warnings they have are not enough, to convince them, then they will not be convinced by one who comes as a son of God. Then they will not be convinced by one who rises from the dead. Remember what the children of Israel said on, the, on Mount Sinai? You know, they, they, here God was speaking directly to them, but they got all scared. They said, Moses, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. You know, people say, oh, if I could hear God's voice, I'd, I'd have thought, oh, Really? They said, oh, no, 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 no. Moses, you, you go up the mountain. You let God talk to you. You come down and tell us what he said. <laughs> if they find God's word insufficient, they will find God's miracle insufficient. Why? Because grace neglect equals grace abuse. Abraham's words came true here in conclusion. They came true. There were grace neglectors in his time. And they did not believe the testimony of another man named Lazarus, 
when he was raised from the dead by Jesus. They did not believe the testimony of Jesus himself. In fact, they plotted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, and then verse 43, you see the plot to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus did all this great stuff. Listen to this. These are grace neglectors here. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and put their faith in him. But, and those are the people of faith, right? But, some of them went to the Pharisees and told what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miracles and miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. John 12, 9 through 11, the plot to kill Lazarus. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. You see, when you neglect grace and abuse grace, you become hardened to God's grace. You become hardened to his word. If you play with God's grace in history, you will pay for neglecting God's grace in eternity. That's the simple message here. Now, don't get the impression that I'm trying to talk about right, works righteousness. We don't earn God's favor anywhere. God gives us grace. He gives us grace. And if you have any idea how precious that is, you would want to serve him in every way you could. You'd want to thank him with your whole life. That's what good works are. That's that, when the Bible talk, says that we are created in Christ Jesus for, for good works, that's what it's talking about. Good works of thanksgiving and gratitude for the grace that God gives. So the warning here, I guess, is don't let God find you feasting on the best while ignoring your neighbor's distress. If you understand grace, then you want to share that. You know, I'm learning how to pass the grace that God gives to me on to others. You remember that parable about this young man who owed this king about $20 million? You know that parable. And he just, he, you know, there's no way for him to pay it back. He was just outdone. And the king said, oh, I'll have pity on this man. And he forgave him the debt. Now, there was a guy in his neighborhood who owed him about 
Now, it would seem that having been forgiven a great debt, he would go and forgive his neighbor who owed him $20. You know what he did? Hung him up by his thumbs. Threatened him. If you don't give me back that money, I'm going to do you in. You know, right? Remember that? Well, grace, neglect. You know the rest of it. So what we need to take from this is that we always need to keep the eternity factor in mind when we conduct our lives, all right? Remember, there is more to life than this life. Remember that we are only looking at the debit side of the ledger sheet. God sees the credit side. Now, let's imagine. Okay, all right. Let's say you work for me, and I say, here's your salary. It's in the bank. You're going to make $100,000 a year. The money's in the bank, but you're getting it out in monthly installments, right? The money's in the bank. And the bank is not going to fold, by the way, you know, okay? <laughs> so you already got it, but you're getting it as you need it. That's the way God's grace is. That's the way his promises are. God makes a promise. You've got it. It's already there. It's in a lockbox. It's guaranteed. Oh, and by the way, let me remind you of something. You know, some of us are going to have promises from God, and we're going to die before we see them fulfilled. Oh, my. But, you know, that's not the word. That's not, as a matter of fact, that's, that's something to rejoice about. You know why? Because that guarantees the fact that you're going to be resurrected because God will not let a promise go unfulfilled. You got it? And sometimes God lets that happen. That's all right. Hey, hey, I'll get it anyway. His promise is even more, more powerful than my life itself. There's more to life than this life. We only see the debit side. Every now and then God reminds us that there is a credit side. As a matter of fact, he tells us, when times get rough, rejoice in all circumstances. Why? Because it's it's the will of God concerning you, right? But if you look at the guarantee of God concerning you, because one day you're going to see this thing you're going through from the perspective of eternity or from the perspective of history later on. And you're going to say, you know, I'm glad about that. <laughs> there are, well, there's not too long, well, several years ago there was this church that I was supposed to be pastor of, and I never became the pastor of it. I, I rejoice about that. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't become the pastor of that church because God had something better for me. Not that the church was bad. It was just that God had something better for me. And, and you look at that. You just remember that every now and then God gives you a glimpse and reminds you that there's a credit side. But the thing that does it is because God guarantees it. It's his promise. And that's grace. If you neglect that, then you're abusing it. Grace neglect equals grace abuse. May God give us the grace not to neglect his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for the challenge you give us in your word. Just pray that you will make us doers of your word and not just hearers, that you will give us the grace not to neglect your grace.
and by so doing. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.